Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Gray Zone. We're almost on time today. I'm Max Blumenthal, founder of the Gray Zone, here with award-winning Canadian journalist Aaron Mate on a, another momentous day. We're also live on Rockfin and Twitter. Um, welcome, Aaron. How's it going? How's it going, Max? How's it going, everybody? Thanks for tuning in, being with us. Please like the stream. Please share it. And we got a very special guest to uh, react to this ruling at the International Court of Justice today on the case brought by South Africa against Israel over genocide. And let's bring him in now. Uh, his name is Craig McIver. He is a, uh, a, a longtime diplomat, former senior UN official who resigned his position recently in protest of the UN's handling or lack of handling in action over Israel's genocide in Gaza. Craig, thank you for joining us. Great to be here with both of you, thanks. Let so, me start by asking you your, your top line reaction to the ruling today from the ICJ. Well, I mean, I've seen all the debate happening on Twitter. I have to say for me, this is an absolutely historic victory for Palestine and for South Africa uh, and for the world in many ways, because it's the first really uh, significant crack in Israeli impunity that we have seen for decades and decades, maybe ever. Uh, you had an almost unanimous court decision, uh, almost unanimous because, of course, there was an Israeli ad hoc judge uh, who was there, who, by the way, didn't vote no on everything. Uh, and then a, a, a very strange uh, dissent from the Ugandan judge. But every other judge on the court voted that South Africa had made a plausible case that Israel is committing genocide and the court ordered Israel to stop all of the related actions. Uh, the so-called provision, provisional measures included a call, uh, not, not just for Israel to take some reasonable measures or some measures, but to take all measures within its power. This is quite a, a strong uh, ruling to immediately stop the killing and the harming of people in Gaza, uh, inflicting des destructive conditions on them, to punish incitement, to allow humanitarian aid, uh, that means ending the siege, um, to preserve evidence and to report to the court within one month. So the, the, the state of Israel is under the supervision of the world court. So for me, this is really significant. It's going to be very important in empowering states and regional organizations and civil society groups and movements and activists uh, to mobilize, to bring more pressure to bear, to actually change the situation on the ground. And uh, uh, you know, I, I know there's a big debate on whether the word ceasefire should have uh, um, appeared here. I don't think it makes that much of a difference um, because whether or not there is a ceasefire language in the decision, it is still the case that if Israel continues killing and harming civilians, destroying civilian infrastructure, blockading uh, Gaza, denying humanitarian aid, using dehumanizing and inciting uh, language, uh, destroying evidence, uh, or failing to report to the court, it will be in breach of the ICJ order. And I think that's very significant. So respond to the <clears throat> critics of the order, including several prominent Palestinian journalists who've been covering this genocide for over 100 days who have slammed the court for its failure to order a ceasefire. Well, of course, we all want a ceasefire. Uh, and that's been one of the principal goals from day one, and that remains a goal 
But, you know, in my sense, what the court has done without using the word ceasefire is it has ordered that kind of action because you cannot, there is no conceivable universe in which you could implement the orders of the court and still continue to bombard Gaza, right? Um, you know, you, you could make an argument that, um, uh, that Israel retains the space and the right to repel attacks. But to continue what it's been doing over the course of these three plus months, that would clearly be in violation. How can you have meaningful delivery of humanitarian aid? The UN has said over and over again, what is preventing the distribution of humanitarian aid principally is that the attacks are, are continuing. You know, How can you stop the killing of Palestinian civilians or doing serious mental and physical harm to them, which is a part of this order as well from the Genocide Convention, if you don't stop the attacks? You cannot, that would be impossible. So it doesn't take a lawyer to identify a breach in what the court has ordered if Israel were to continue these activities. The other thing I want I would say about that, Max, is that some of those who are trying to emphasize the ceasefire language most of all are those who support the genocide in Gaza. A lot of corporate media outlets in the West, in the U.S. and in the West, are trying to report on this by saying the court didn't order a ceasefire, therefore, you know, basically Israel is one. And we have to think about their motives, right? These are media outlets that have worked very hard to maintain an information brownout in the US and in the West about, about genocide. And many of them have been actively disseminating Israeli propaganda, dehumanizing language against Palestinians, actual incitement to genocide, justification of war crimes in their, their reporting. So now they're trying like crazy to downplay how badly Israel has lost this stage of the proceedings by focusing on that, that ceasefire question. I think that's a, a, a disingenuous analysis on their part, and I think it's not a very good analysis, uh, analysis by those who are focusing on it here. That said, I'll just repeat again, we all want to ceasefire. I think this decision helps us uh, to move toward that direction. <clears throat> I'm not getting any audio. I don't know if uh, it's my side or you're muted. Sorry, I was bad. muted. Here's a top Israeli propagandist, Avi Mayer, touting the decision as a huge win and a devastating blow to, uh, to accusing the Jewish state of genocide because it urged it only to take measures to avoid civilian casualties, as it already does, according to Avi Mayer, and ease humanitarian conditions, but not ordering a ceasefire. And by the way, Avi Mayer is the former editor of the Jerusalem Post who was fired, as far as I know, because he attempted to, he ran a story spinning a dead Palestinian baby as a doll. Um, yeah. So I think this kind of, this, this, that you were hearing this not only from Israeli propagandists, but also from some supporters of Palestine that this, that the ICJ failed here. Um, but Aaron, uh, feel free to jump in with a question. Craig, were you surprised at the majority that voted against Israel here, uh, 15 to 2, uh, given how politicized institutions like the ICJ are, as you know well from working for so long at the United Nations? Yeah, I mean, what I was saying uh, in interviews and discussions prior to this is that this, this tendency by people to look at the nationality of the judges and just count up the votes according to nationalities never made any sense because we know from the history of the court, we know from the history of every court that politics plays a role, the national politics, the personal politics of the judge 
But there are other factors there. And that's what really seemed to have uh, predominated in this case. For example, you know, these judges do care about the law for the most part. They are bound, they are constrained to some degree by jurisprudence of the court, by the language of the, of the convention, by their concern about their own reputations and about the reputation of the court. And some of them are, you know, from the West are actually bona fide international lawyers who care very much about international law. So while I expected some political distortions, and some of those may be evident in, in the decision, um, I, I was fairly confident, cautiously optimistic, I was saying that the, that the decision would go um, in, in this direction. It's not a perfect decision. And you can see where they threw in some language in the decision to try to appease some who might be uncomfortable. Um, so, for example, you know, the judge, uh, uh, this, the, the president of the court, who was a lifetime U.S. State Department lawyer who was actually representing the State Department at a time when the U.S. was actually complicit in crimes against the Palestinians and who was now the president of the court until February 5th. Um, when she started reading it out, she began by talking about uh, uh, October 7th, when the South African case very clearly you know, laid out the case for genocide as a part of a continuum going back to the beginning of uh, you know, 1947, 1948. Um, so that may have been thrown in there. There's, there's, a, there's language in there about Hamas, which I think was put in there probably to appease them because the court has no jurisdiction over Hamas. Uh, Hamas wasn't there to defend itself. Hamas uh, is not a state party. It's not a state. Um, so there was no reason for that to be included except to try to uh, get a uh, uh, an almost uh, unanimous decision. And it was almost unanimous. As I say, uh, the, the, the dissenting voices came from an ad hoc Israeli judge who's been very much on the record of supporting what Israel is doing. Uh, and oddly, and I, I don't know if anyone's gotten to the bottom of this yet, a uh, Ugandan judge who voted against the decision on every single ruling that made up the, uh, the decision. Every other judge voted in favor of South Africa, in favor of, uh, of Palestine. Uh, so, um, so no, I wasn't, uh, I, I, well, um, I was pleased that the numbers were what they were. I was expecting a majority, but, um, uh, but such, a, such an overwhelming, almost unanimous decision uh, that's just gravy. Yeah, yeah I, I, the Ugandan judge was named Sebutunde. Yeah. Uganda has a sort of evangelical right-wing leadership that's it's a real base for AFRICOM, and Israel has invested a lot in uh, its relations with Uganda, giving them military and tech. So I would assume it was a political decision. And, you know, maybe she got promised, uh, you know, to send her children to Ivy League colleges after all of the um, administrators and presidents are fired by Bill Ackman. I don't know, but it seemed like a very political move there. Um, There's something very, very strange there. It's true. Although um, uh, there have been uh, statements from the government saying that they don't support her position on the court. And that's interesting. Yeah, um, uh, it's true what you said. That was my first thought is there are very close relationships between Israel and a number of Afri African countries, including Uganda, uh, on trade and economic uh, relations, on tech and all sorts of sorts of things like that. So that was my first assumption, but uh, and it may still be true, but there were public statements coming out of the government uh, distancing themselves from the position taken by the judge. Go ahead, Aaron. 
when Israel, when the ICJ ruling lists the measures that it wants Israel to take in terms of what it wants Israel to stop doing, the first thing it says is uh, to refrain from killing members of the group, which is Palestinians in Gaza. And people who see the ICJ ruling as a positive have pointed out that that's actually more welcome than calling for a ceasefire, because the language of a ceasefire implies some parity in these two sides. Uh, between, you know, a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel, as if there's any kind of parity there, when this really is a mass murder campaign by Israel. So therefore, calling on Israel to refrain from killing Palestinians is basically telling Israel to stop attacking Gaza. That's that's the interpretation of people who see this ruling as, as very positive. And I agree with that assessment, because ceasefire language is usually about a, a, a war between two sides. Um, and this is not this is not a war in the strict sense. This is a genocide. This is an assault on a civilian population. It has been from the from the very first day. And so, in some ways, the language of the court is better than uh, using ceasefire language in that regard, properly interpreted. Because what's going to happen now is that Israel is going to look for whatever wiggle. I mean, I, I see two possibilities here. Either Israel will just say, go to hell and ignore it, as it always does with international decisions of, uh, of this nature. And indeed, some ministers have already uh, been saying publicly that they reject it and that it doesn't matter and that it's anti-Semitic and all these the, the usual predictable uh, responses. Um, uh, or the other approach that might be taken is they may say, oh, yes, we are complying. And any action that they take to do to harm people in Gaza and infrastructure in Gaza from this day forward, they will simply say, we are we are respecting international law. There's no intent here. We're going after Hamas. So in other words, doing what they've been doing all along and then getting the support of the spokespersons in U.S., uh, you know, in Washington to say that, you know, we, we see no evidence that they're violent or the usual, the usual sort of thing. I don't think that will hold with the court. And I don't think it will hold with public opinion. And I don't think it will hold uh, with, for example, all of Europe. It certainly won't hold with the global South. So, but I, I see them taking one of those two paths, either just a complete rejection and uh, you know, smearing of the court, or on the other hand, pretending to go along, but continuing with its, its assault on Gaza uh, and then denying, denying intent. So Netanyahu has said that no matter what the court does, no one can stop Israel from going all the way towards victory. Um, the U.S., of course, will ignore this as well. They were asked, I think, in this the State Department briefing yesterday, they said they were asked if they would obey the ruling, and they kind of refused to uh, answer the question. My boy Vedant Patel. Um, so, well, let's talk about enforcement mechanisms. I mean, when Israel predictably ignores this call for them to cease uh, genocidal practices in the Gaza Strip. Uh, what what can be done to enforce this ruling? And specifically, is Yemen's military acting to, I mean, does this ruling help legitimize what Yemen's military is doing to stop the genocide? Well, I've been saying all along that the two states that have taken concrete effort to meet their international obligations to prevent uh, and fight against genocide are South Africa and Yemen, uh, uh, the, the, the Houthis in, uh, in, in Yemen. Uh, and I still think that is, is true. Um, but, uh, and I'm not surprised by the US hesitant to commit itself. The US uh, you know, has had rulings against it in the International Court of Justice, uh, 
the mining of the harbors in Nicaragua uh, that it completely ignored uh, and continued to violate international law. And of course, Israel has had ruling against it, the advisory opinion on the apartheid wall uh, in, in the West Bank that it has refused to uh, implement and that the U.S. has defended it in its impunity in that case. So these are the kinds of reactions we expect from states that don't respect international uh, don't respect international law. The pressure on the rest of the international community of other states, it seems to me, is where it's really important. It's going to be harder and harder, for example, to have um, a, a genocidal wall maintained in Europe across the board. Um, I, I think you are going to increasingly see states there uh, feeling compelled to go along with the ruling of the uh, of the court and to say things uh, uh, appropriately. You've already had a lot of dissent expressed by some European courts, uh, some European countries like Ireland, obviously, you know, is a lot of dissent, but Slovenia and Spain and some some others. I, I think you're going to see Finland. We just saw Finland's foreign Finland. minister say, hey, we've. Uh, reach the limit of uh, dead Palestinian babies. Right. So, right, right. So, I think you're going to see more and more of that, and it's going to be harder for Europe to maintain this pro-genocide line that they have so shamefully, you know, held onto since the beginning of the uh, of the onslaught. I think you're going to see this as an encouragement to other states in the global south um, to be standing up. And my hope is that I mean, we we know what the next step is going to be. Um, Israel is either going to say it will not comply or not comply, uh, say it's going to comply and not do so, uh, whether or not they will be within a month back at the court to provide the mandated report, I don't know. But either way, the court is going to be compelled to, to act again uh, when, it is, when it receives reports that these things are not being implemented. And then the court relies on the Security Council for enforcement in the first instance. The U.S. will veto. Well, I suspect the U.S. will veto. Uh, again, any action to compel that. Some people think the U.S. might abstain. I think that would be extraordinary under a Biden presidency. Uh, I think they're, they're still most likely to veto. When that <laughs> happens, and in some ways that may be a good thing, because you might actually get a stronger uh, resolution in the General Assembly. So when the Security Council fails, it goes to the General Assembly under the Uniting for Peace resolution and an emergency special session where the General Assembly, whether you have one country, one vote, could come together and there they could do one of two things. Either they could adopt a resolution that just condemns Israel and doesn't have any meat to it, which would be terrible, but it could do something else. It could adopt a resolution that asked states to take certain concrete measures that relate to sanctioning Israel um, you know, through diplomatic and uh, consular action, economic action, political action. It could encourage states to take uh, individual criminal cases under universal jurisdiction against Israeli um, uh, perpetrators. It could call for the non-recognition of Israeli travel documents. It could, um, it could set up a tribunal. It could set up mechanisms as it did during apartheid in South Africa to bring more pressure to bear and to mobilize the international community against the perpetrating, uh, the perpetrating regime. There are a lot of concrete things that could be in a resolution like that. Now, what you can bet would be happening behind the scenes is the U.S. and its allies would use all their carrots and sticks to browbeat countries of the South to not vote in favor of that resolution and to try to water it down into something that just condemns and doesn't have any of those, those measures. Even in that case, you know, this is a crime of universal jurisdiction. The court has underscored again that the obligation, 
the obligations we're talking about here are obligations erga omnes partes, which means those obligations are on every state, every state that's a party to the convention. In fact, under customary international law for genocide, even those that haven't ratified the convention have those those obligations. And, and that means any of them individually or collectively are responsible to take measures to try to give effect to this um, uh, in whatever ways they can, individual criminal cases, relations, weapons uh, sales, uh, technology exchanges, um, all of these things could be really meaningful. And of course, when the movement to try to hold South Africa accountable for apartheid began, there are very few states involved in that, frontline states and a few others, and that grew and grew and grew. And it's that momentum I think we're relying on. And then the last thing I'll say is, this is very powerful for global society, for movements, for labor unions, for civil society actors, activists and others. This is gonna be a, a, a huge tool in the toolkit of pushing back from global civil society that can be turned into pressure against governments then, including governments in the West, uh, to do the right thing. So I, I think, again, I'll finish where I started on this. It's a historic day, and it is a real crack in Israel's impunity. Well, on the no on that note, Craig, uh, just wanted to ask you about one such action that's taking place today in Oakland, uh, where the Center for uh, Constitutional Rights and Palestinian uh, legal professionals are actually entering a federal court in Oakland to hold the U.S. government, Biden, Blinken, Jake Sullivan, accountable for genocide in Gaza. They're basically piggybacking off this ruling. Here's a scene outside. Well, and tell us how you're feeling as we're about to and This is a Palestinian going to testify. Feeling good. Feeling very hopeful. Um, but, you know, we, we come in today, we realize it's a historic moment, but our hearts and minds are with our families. We are here today, but our families still being subjected to unprecedented brutality. We think of them today, we speak on their behalf, and we're hopeful that a measure of justice will be seen today. So, so what do you make of this uh, action and... Oakland. I mean, can this lead anywhere? Is the are, are, are the Biden principles sweating at all in your view? Should they sweat over this ruling at the ICJ? Well, I mean, I think the fact that the case has gone forward uh, uh, this far is encouraging. That this court is willing actually to hear it, uh, I think, is is remarkable. And so, I think that's encouraging, and that should make them sweat. I think the fact that it's a part of a broader legal initiative globally that includes cases before the International Criminal Court, as corrupt as the prosecutor of that court is, that's a symbol. Uh, what's happening in the in the world court, that's important. What's happening there is important. And that, that's the point I was trying to make. What we need is to have legal action, uh, either civil or criminal, um, uh, in courts all around the world to bring that uh, pressure to bear. And the beautiful thing about the initiative of the Center for Constitutional Rights in the California courts is that it's going after U.S. officials for complicity, which is a separate offense under the Genocide Convention. Uh, and I think that will make a huge difference. You know, Israel is able to perpetrate this genocide because of the direct support of the United States, as we've discussed before. It's, it's military support, it's intelligence support, it's economic support, it's diplomatic support, it's use of the veto in the Security Council and so on. Uh, Israel couldn't get away with this 
without the United States and some other Western uh, allies. And so it's right to bring pressure to bear on those who are perpetrating complicity so that we can ultimately you know, root out uh, the violence that's being perpetrated against the, the Palestinians. Uh, so I think it's, uh, you know, we're all holding our breath. Um, that's gone this far is already encouraging, but that it's a part of a larger trend that I hope will grow is what really gives me hope. Craig, as a former UN official, I wanted to get your response to news that coincided with the ICJ ruling. I believe the Biden administration announced this right after the decision from the ICJ on the genocide case came down, which is this, uh, that the U.S. is cutting funding to <clears throat> UNRWA, uh, the Palestinian, the, the U.N. agency serving Palestinian refugees, serving more than 2 million Palestinian refugees, uh, over allegations that 12 UNRWA employees were involved in the October 7th attacks on Israel. And what is the basis for this claim? Well, according to Axios, an Israeli official said that a lot of the intelligence that went into this allegation is a result of interrogations of militants who were arrested during the October 7th attack. So based on allegations from Israel, uh, which were garnered through interrogations, which means torture, because that's what Israel does, the Biden administration is accusing some UNRWA employees of potential involvement in October 7th, and therefore cutting off uh, their funding to UNRWA, the main agency at the UN serving Palestinian refugees. Um, your comments on this and the timing of it on the same day that the ICJ hands down this decision. I mean, I think two things. One is it needs to be recorded as another piece of evidence of US complicity in genocide. I mean, how can you think of anything more cruel and morally depraved than in the midst of a genocide against a defenseless civilian population who are already being denied food and water and shelter and medicine and all of those sorts of things, that the one hope of real humanitarian relief to those people is now going to be blocked by the United States government. Number one, further evidence of full US complicity in perpetrating the first genocide of the 21st, uh, 21st century. I think that needs to be said. Uh, there's no doubt that you know Israel has been making these accusations against UNRWA forever. Israel hates UNRWA. Israel hates the fact that Palestinian society is able to be sustained in spite of its cruel sieges and blockades and so on because of a commitment of the international community to provide the kind of aid, education, healthcare, all those sorts of things that, that UNRWA provides. They know very well that without UNRWA, uh, their plan of making life absolutely unlivable in Gaza will be expedited. And the US is helping them in that plan. That's a, that's absolutely horrifying. And doing it on the basis, as you said, Aaron, which is absolutely right, of people who have been tortured in order to, to, to say what it is that the Israeli torturers want to hear, that's another layer of cynicism and cruelty that I think is, uh, uh, is absolutely disgusting. I don't know how else to describe a, a thing like that. Um, my hope is that other parts of the world will step up to fill the gap. And my ultimate hope is that as a matter of international law, it's Israel who's supposed to be paying for all of this destruction uh, through reparations and compensation. And I hope that will be a part of the final order and that others will be pressing for that as well. But absolutely disgraceful. For those of you just tuning in, uh, we're, we're speaking with Craig Mokhyber, who is an international legal expert and a whistleblower who resigned his position at the U United Nations Office of the Human Rights Commissioner's New York office over its failure to confront genocide. Aaron, you wanted to... 
Well, I just I wanted to say, sorry, Max, um, that this is just this is now the second major Trump policy that Biden has reimposed in the last few weeks. The first one came when in response to Ansar Allah, a.k.a. the Houthis, intervening in the Red Sea to block ships in protest of the genocide in Gaza. The Biden administration responded with bombing Yemen, but also putting Ansar Allah back on the terror list, which uh, is a death sentence for all the millions of Yemenis living under the majority of Yemeni territory, which Ansar Allah controls. And that was a move by Mike Pompeo to do that, to put the Houthis, Ansar Allah, on the terror list. Biden reversed that. Now he's going back to the Trump policy to punish Ansar Allah for defying the genocide. And now Biden is also cutting off funds to UNRWA, the refugee agency for Palestinians at the United Nations. And that's another uh, reimposition of a Trump policy because Trump, under heavy lobbying from Nikki Haley, cut off funding to UNRWA. And Nikki Haley, by the way, pushed for this shortly after she visited Palestinian refugees, met with them in the West Bank and heard their stories, uh, and then turned around and decided to cut off funding to them. Nikki so Haley, a.k.a. APAC with a skirt. <laughs> I mean, that's the remarkable thing is that you've, you've got, I mean, this is a, uh, this is both parties, both of the major parties in the United States, administration after administration, year after year, supporting these kinds of horrific policies in, in the Middle East. What they have in common is the degree to which that they are captured by APAC, but also their own anti-Arab racism and Islamophobia and imperialistic designs for the Middle East, neoconservative, uh, pro-weapons manufacturing. I mean, these are the these are the things unrights why the top four candidates in the u.s presidential election right now meaning uh you know trump and nikki haley on one side biden and rfk jr on the other side are all just openly foaming at the mouth with genocidal rhetoric about the people in gaza as the genocide is is taking place there's no hope for any any daylight um uh between them and you know it's it's really interesting to see that you know, it's the it's the same kind of ruthlessness. If you can uh, remember, the Israelis have killed more than 150 UNRWA staff, many of them along with their families since this phase of the genocide um, began. And now, in a continuing that attack, the U.S. is is working with them to make these people suffer even even further. And that reminds me very much of Yemen, which is a country that, with U.S. support, was bombed. Uh, and blockaded and forced into pri previous to Gaza, the greatest humanitarian catastrophe in the world before Ga the Gaza uh, uh, attacks uh, started. And now this willingness of the US in response to an effort to stop only ships that are delivering supplies to a regime that's perpetrating genocide in which nobody was killed in those shipping actions to actually launch attacks uh, on Yemen on an impoverished, hungry, beaten population. Uh, it's the same kind of multi-layered cruelty that we're seeing in Gaza. Max, I think- Max, you're muted. muted. <laughs> I was, it, it was so insightful what I was saying. I forgot now. No, I mean, I, I can't stress enough how, how absurd it is and insane that the United States is basing this decision off of quote unquote interrogations. This is like curveball. Uh, this is like, uh, you know, Iraq WMD level deception in order to starve people in Gaza. And simultaneously, you can kind of see what the Israelis are doing to prevent the aid from going in. Now, the aid that was going into Gaza 
correct me if I'm wrong, Craig, was part of a deal brokered by Qatar. And the deal was contingent on much of that medical aid reaching the hostages and prisoners of war in Gaza who are Israeli. And here you have Israeli you know, Jewish nationalist fanatics blocking the aid from going הגענו למעבר עם משפחות החטופים, יש פה את גיסתו של ליבמן, וידעני ש... Now, Kerem Shalom was opened only thanks to the intervention of Tony Blinken, who wanted to give people in Gaza aid with one hand and give Israel bombs and fighter jets and tank shells with the other. And here you have Israelis blocking the aid. Soldiers aren't stopping them, really. They're letting them go through. Kerem Shalom is the only place where large trucks can be checked. And so basically what happens is all the aids coming up through the northern Sinai, and then they have to go and stop over in Kerem Shalom and then go back to Rafa or go through Kerem Shalom to get into Gaza. And they're, I mean, what, first of all, what do you, what do you know about this? Are, are, are a significant number of aid trucks now being blocked? Um, does it seem to you like the Israeli government is in on this, violating this deal? And again, where, where does this figure into the ICJ's decision? Is it strong enough to address criminal behavior like this? Well, there's no question that the degree to which Israel has allowed uh, aid to be delivered to the Gaza Strip, which is a trickle of what there was before um, uh, October and a even less of a trickle compared to what the needs are now in Gaza is another fig leafing activity. There are a number of things that they've been doing, like when they drop leaflets that are meaningless, when they draw maps with arrows and then bomb the places where the arrows are, when they allow a right. trickling trucks in, when they record a video of Netanyahu in English saying that they respect civilians the day before the ICJ hearings. These are all fig leafing that are done in concert with the United States government, which is involved in this fig leafing as well. Um, uh, just as something for consumption in the West and maybe for a part of their uh, of their legal defense. But every single day, the UN is reporting obstruction from the Israelis on the delivery of aid. And they use many different devices for this. Uh, you know, long inspection, Israel insists on inspections uh, from its side. I mean, think about that, that the government perpetrating genocide against uh, interned, contained people is the one that is supervising and deciding how much and what aid is allowed to get into them. I mean, have you ever seen this in, in history before? And that, that you know, and the UN trying its best to get something in there, I presume, uh, is going along with this crazy, uh, with this crazy charade and is complaining every day that they're not able to do what they need to do because of obstruction. So some of that is being done through these inspections, these long delayed uh, inspections, uh, you know, delays by design. And I have no doubt that some of it will be through obstructive activities like the one that you just showed, uh, that you just showed on, on Vizio. The purpose, Israel's purpose in Gaza is to make life unlivable for the survivors. So you kill as many as you need, you carve out a so-called buffer zone, as they call it, which is basically ethnic cleansing around the entire uh, uh, margin. If it was a buffer zone, they'd do it in Israel, but they're not doing it in Israel, they're doing it in Gaza, right? Um, uh, and, and then you continue these assaults, the last, you know, uh, um, section of the Gaza Strip in the south around Khan Yunus now, moving to Rafah, 
um, to make it as unlivable as possible. And the, the inflow of a large amount of aid would obstruct Israel's plans for making it absolutely unlivable and uninhabitable. So they're going to try to delay that as much as possible and use whatever, I think, measures they have uh, to, to limit the flow of aid going into Gaza. Which is Let me read just... this from the Washington Post. This was January uh, 14th in the Washington Post. And it's talking about how, so initially, the convoluted way the aid would get in was that it would first go from Egypt, be inspected at Rafah, then go up to Israel, be inspected there. And then a token amount would be allowed to go in via Israel, but most of it would have to go back to Egypt, you know, leading to significant delays because Israel has to inspect everything. So then the Washington Post says this. Late last year, a breakthrough came when trucks were allowed to enter Israel via the Allenby Bridge from Jordan, where they were inspected and permitted to drive through Israel directly to Karim Shalom and into Gaza. But after one shipment, Israeli political considerations intervened and a new system was put in place. Goods must now be inspected and transferred at the bridge from Jordanian to Israeli trucks and reloaded again in Egyptian trucks as they approach the enclave to avoid the appearance that Israel is providing direct assistance to Gaza. So because of Israeli political considerations that don't want the appearance that Israel is allowing aid directly to go into Gaza, that has significantly slowed down the delivery of already a token amount of trucks because the amount going in during a genocide is even lower than it was before the genocide, which is just impossible to fathom. And the article goes on to say that Israel has accused Hamas of looting these aid trucks, but U.S. officials have seen no evidence of that whatsoever. Yeah, that's a, that's one of the lies they hear repeated over and over again. And they actually repeated that in court at the world court. I mean, they said the reason people weren't getting humanitarian aid is because uh, is because Hamas was stealing humanitarian aid. They even claim that the destruction in Gaza was mostly due to Hamas either intentionally or accidentally blowing things up. And it wasn't the Israelis who were doing most of the of the damage. But this issue on the aid, on the humanitarian uh, uh, aid, this is one of the rulings of the court today. They ordered Israel to take immediate and effective measures, immediate and effective measures, right? So all of these things that are not effective, like the leafleting, all these sort of things, immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of basic services and humanitarian assistance that will address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. That's one of the orders that was issued today. And I fully expect that Israel is going to be in breach of that uh, from today on. Uh, but yes, that is a part of the order. And that's that, you know, the breach of that can be a part of the enforcement measures that we look for as a result. I have a question for both of you. And Max, I'll start with you. Do you think the order today from the ICJ has any implications when it comes to Ansar Allah uh, the Houthis, their intervention, their blockade in the Red Sea in protest of the Israeli genocide in Gaza. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I we, we asked Craig that a version of that question earlier, and I agree with what he said, which is at least from a moral point of view, it legitimizes what they're doing or it speaks to the urgency of their actions because there is no enforcement mechanism in the ICJ's ruling. The ICJ just doesn't have the power to enforce the ruling. So, uh, I mean, there are also other international legal conventions which provide the basis for intervening to prevent genocide prior to this ruling that Craig can speak to. But I agree with what Craig said before. And for those who are, are watching now um, or just joining, we're speaking to Craig Mulkyber 
uh, former New York office director for the UN Office of Human Rights Commissioner and international legal expert. And I interviewed the Houthi spokesman, Muhammad al-Bukhaiti, last week. Um, it, it, it's uh, The video is on our YouTube channel, and he emphasizes again and again and again that what they are doing is simply trying to create economic pressure as bloodlessly as possible to force a ceasefire. So, uh, and it seemed pretty sincere. So yes, I, 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 I mean, I agree with Craig and, you know, as long as the U S and Israel defy this order, I think more forces will be brought to bear, uh, violently, unfortunately to prevent genocide. Yeah, I think, you know, Max, what you're saying is is interesting because you have the the moral plane, which I don't think yeah. anybody can doubt that, you know, the 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 Yemenis, the Houthis taking action to prevent delivery uh, shipments to a regime that's perpetrating genocide is the moral thing to do. It is also, I have argued, the legal thing to do because all countries have an obligation under international law to act to prevent genocide. Uh, and, and you know, very few states have taken meaningful action to do that so far. As I've said, South Africa and arguably uh, arguably Yemen under Ansar Allah. Um, uh, but then there's the political realm. And that's why the U.S. and its allies are so determined to declare that the Houthis are terrorists and pirates. Because you have this other realm out there, counterterrorism and anti-piracy and so on, that gives them a platform on which to oppose this. Um, so, uh, you know, they've sort of shown the way in many respects, but I think what's what's going to happen, whether the West, uh, you know, the U.S. and the Israelis and the U.K. and others like it or not, is more and more you're going to see states taking these kinds of measures. I think a meaningful resolution in the General Assembly would help to create a critical mass of action amongst member states. Uh, and, and of course, they're, they're going to be prepared to try to oppose that, but that would be one way to do it. But even if you didn't get a good resolution in the General Assembly, um, uh, individual states, regional organizations, regional groupings, uh, they can all take action and in fact legally are obliged to take action to stop this. So we'll see how many will break off and start uh, taking meaningful action in the way that South Africa has done and in the way that Yemen has done. And I just think from a moral point of view, this is a, this ruling this ruling strength is discursive, and moral in that it breaks, it, it helps break the exclusivist perspective on the Holocaust that Israel has pushed, that they are the sole victims of genocide and therefore have the right to do whatever they want to preserve themselves and their survival. It's a, it, it, this is a glacial shift just on the moral and discursive plane, uh, leaving aside the legal implications. That's my sort of final view along with uh, agreeing with everything Craig said, especially that the only way to implement these uh, recommendations or, or orders is through a, a ceasefire. And obviously the U.S. won't impose it, so other forces have to be brought to bear. Um, I guess my last question would be, Craig, uh, I mean, explain what happens next here because, um, I mean, what, where, where, where does this place the ICC, the UN General Assembly, the UN Security Council? What, what, what's next? 
Well, as I said, Israel is effectively under the supervision of the ICJ. We'll have to report back within a month. The, the case on the merits will continue probably over a period um, of years. There'll have to be enforcement moves made because I fully expect uh, that Israel is not going to meet its obligations under this order. And that's where it will go to the Security Council, face a U.S. veto most likely, and then go to the GA. And that's what I was talking about action in the General Assembly and to individual action by states and uh, and, and regional groupings. I hope that this, because re remember, step one is that the world court has decided that South Africa has made a plausible case of genocide against the state of Israel. I mean, just stop and think about that for a moment. That is absolutely historic. And that uh, should influence other legal action, including in the International Criminal Court. It's very hard for the International Criminal Court to uh, completely ignore this case now that the World Court has pushed it forward. They've gone through step by step all of the challenges that Israel has, has uh, given the case and said that it has to proceed and there's a plausible case and therefore this order has to be implemented. The International Criminal Court has a deeply politically corrupted prosecutor who has been blocking action on Palestine for years in Karim Khan. Karim Khan has to go if the International Criminal Court is going to be saved. If the International Criminal Court isn't saved, if they don't do something to get rid of Karim Khan, uh, their, leg their legitimacy will be over and that experiment will be over for generations uh, to come. And so be it, if it isn't going to be that kind of a politically corrupted court, let it go. And we'll find other ways to pursue justice in the uh, in the international realm, including through universal jurisdiction in third party, in third party courts. And I think you can expect some of those uh, legal proceedings to start to to take place in to take place in third party courts. Um, so that's that's what's next. And I think for for ordinary people everywhere, this is a moment to seize the momentum and to and to increase the level of act, activism and dissent and disruption. Uh, and you know, a moral movement, an anti-apartheid movement uh, to bring pressure to bear um, in solidarity with the Palestinian people and with international law itself. The International Court of Justice may have saved uh, international law because it was hanging by a thread. Uh, and so international law will live to fight another day. But real grassroots pressure from people, from movements, from unions, uh, uh, from civil society, on national governments to try to do the right thing in this case, that's the next step. Whatever happens in the Security Council, the General Assembly, it, you know, if it's gonna be a moral position, it's gonna to have to come from people. And that's where I'm encouraged. Again, we talked about this before that we see people standing up everywhere uh, in, in record numbers and in creative ways and in powerful ways. And I don't think that's going to, uh, I, I, this feels to me like a South Africa moment, not just because South Africa has brought this case to the court, but the last time we saw this was in the battle against apartheid in South Africa. And what switched it was the mobilization of people pressuring and shaming their governments to change their policy uh, and, and to stand against apartheid. That could happen here too, I believe it. It's about enforcement. I mean, the ICJ ruling on the apartheid wall led to the birth of the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement as a means of enforcing that ruling and we're witnessing that movement uh, reach an, another a new phase, a uh, stronger phase, escalating its tactics. Um, so it's up, unfortunately, in the West, it's up to civil society to enforce this ruling. 
Um, Aaron, I don't know if there's anything you want to ask or add in closing. Well, the one point I wanted to stress about the cutting of UNRWA by Biden, it shows that they're willing to use their leverage when they believe alleged war crimes have been committed, in this case directed at Palestinians and punishing the people of Gaza even further for allegations that, again, were derived from torture, most likely from torture of Palestinian captives. Uh, but compare that to their refusal to leverage or condition any U.S. support for Israel. And in fact, their willingness to rush Israel weapons and aid and even bypass congressional review. Just the contrast between cutting funding to yeah. Palestinian refugees over dubious allegations while turning a complete blind eye to the genocide unfolding in front of our eyes and the cutting off of aid to Gaza, as the Israeli defense minister promised to do. It's just... The contrast is it makes this administration even more diabolical than I could have imagined. Like if I were to conjure, imagine what else Biden could do to show his cruelty to Palestinians. I, I wouldn't even think of this one because it's just so cruel to cut off aid to Palestinian refugees. Another form of collective punishment and again, directly carried out by the United States of America. It's, it's absolutely stunning. Well, uh, Craig Mokhyber, uh former New Yorker office director of the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner at the UN and international legal expert. Thanks so much for sharing your insights and your time with us. Uh, I know our audience really appreciated it and we learned a lot as well. Well, it's, it's my privilege, uh, Max and Aaron. Thank you for everything that the both of you have been doing for so many years now and for the Gray Zone, which is such an important uh, source of investigative journalism and analysis and reporting, uh, you know, there's never been a moment in history when this kind of independent media was more important. I'm just really happy to be here with you. Thank you. It's a, it's a huge honor and uh, we'll definitely have you back soon. Great. Thanks. Thank All you. right. Great Take care. You. Thank you. All right. So that was um, encouraging. There's a lot of dissension going on on Twitter within the, what could be crudely referred to as the pro-Palestinian sphere. <clears throat> I understand people in Gaza coming out, either coming out of Gaza or still being there who feel like they were betrayed by this ruling because the only way they can be sure that they and their families will survive is a ceasefire. That's the only yeah. thing they really care about. They don't care about a years long investigation they don't care about the moral force of this ruling. That's all they care about. So I can understand why they would say that. I personally am not surprised by the ruling. If anything, I'm like slightly pleasantly surprised just because of my own sense of skepticism or cynicism about everything um, that 14 judges voted in favor of every order and that it does legitimize the context for accusing Israel of genocide. I mean, not that we needed the legitimization from Brussels, but it, 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 it's, it's, it's going to propel the movement to bring it to, to hold Israel accountable for its crimes. I mean, there's no doubt about that. So I'm not surprised. I expected something somewhat watered down, but I expected it to be more watered down. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, now, the question before us is, do we want to torture ourselves and listen to John Kirby's reaction to 
ruling today and, and respond. To I think we should too. move to, you know, I think we should move on. Okay. All um, right. We could torture ourselves by, I don't know, watching Elon Musk be presented with <laughs> a rock fired from that says never again by a shady group calling itself the Jewish voice of Europe, flanked by neocon child actor Ben Shapiro looking at his phone, Benicide Shapiro. <laughs> at Auschwitz as the cucked billionaire Elon Musk sits down with this talentless, annoying little Zionist frenetic gerbil to legitimize <laughs> genocide at Auschwitz. And, you know, I, I mean, we should, we should actually like do a, a separate episode just responding to this. Cause it's, it was so insane. I actually watched it. Wow. Um, and one of the most incredible moments arrived where Elon Musk actually says, just because a group is more is vulnerable or weak doesn't mean that, uh, they basically doesn't mean they shouldn't be killed. Uh, if they're trying to kill you referring to the Palestinians in Gaza flanked by this never again sign. What happens next is actually pretty crazy. I think we should show this. Um, I'll, I'll like in, increase the speed and turn up the volume. This is worth watching. Okay, so a presentation comes on screen of tweets from the Jewish Holocaust. Does having a 4.0 oh, GPA thank you matter? For this ad. Six to okay, twelve grade well, parents. This is We're really going to expose the Okay, so the tweets are coming up. And it's people tweeting from, I can't believe what I just saw. The Nazis told Jews to get inside the synagogue, entire families, infants in their mother's arms. They've closed the doors and set the windows on fire. Basically, this is a presentation in Auschwitz for Elon Musk and Ben Shapiro's event. All these tweets that are supposedly, you know, dated 1941, 1943. Sure, is this, we finally defeated the Juden terrorists in the Warsaw Ghetto, says Franz Conard, who's a Twitter supporter of Hitler, and then people are clapping back. Then a Nazi propaganda site is saying, you know, here's Auschwitz camp, members of the thriving Jewish community in our camp perform a rehearsal with musical instruments. And then it's community noted saying, uh, you know, Jews are actually being subjected to genocide there. So the community notes save the day. And the community notes is one of Elon's big, uh, you know, free speech talking points. As if they're not being hijacked by Zionists. Okay, then another, you know, stop the genocide now from Hans Mortimer dated uh, June 1944. He documented everything. Look at the drawings in the report and read the list. The Nazis are not playing games. You know, and so everybody's documenting genocide on Twitter in the 1940s, the genocide of Jews. And on and on. I remember you saying AI is potentially the most pressing risk to humans. The volume's bad. But basically what this guy from the European Jewish Association is saying is that if we had had Twitter X during the Jewish genocide, in Europe, uh, the world would have intervened. The, the U.S. would have bombed the railroad tracks to Auschwitz. This never would have happened. Um, the pressure would have been too extreme. And Elon Musk, if he had just been there, 
during the Jewish genocide, if Elon had been there, Jews would have been saved. And here is Elon at Auschwitz with one of the top supporters of Israel's genocide in Gaza. And those of you watching are tweeting about this genocide. People from Gaza are tweeting about it. And it's still happening. It's still going on. In fact, they're going to Auschwitz to cheer it on here. Well, Max, one one caveat. They're tweeting about it when they're able to, because sometimes Israel shuts off all the internet yeah. access for them inside Gaza. Right. So when but no able, one can say they don't know now. No, of course. I no, I, I know. I mean, it's I mean, it's just what I'm saying is it's it's that worse that even their ability to communicate the outside world is sometimes cut off. But yeah, of course, we, we're all seeing the genocide unfold. Uh, I didn't know about this. So this is just unbelievable. And and, where, and what is all this about? Because one time Elon Musk on Twitter uh, said uh, something like he, he mocked the ADL or something. He was like, you know, yeah. he said they can go F themselves or something. And he also even liked or reposted or replied to a, an anti-Semitic tweet. So now to uh, he has to bow down to the pro-genocide lobby around the world and, you know, uh, desecrate the memory of Holocaust victims to do it. Yeah, that's kind of what it's about. It really is about the ADL. It's about the Israel lobby and the ADL. They're running this huge campaign against Elon Musk, but the ADL okay, they believe in it. Jonathan Greenblatt believes in what he's doing from a pro-Israel Zionist point of view. But the ADL is just a battering ram for the Democratic Party and the New York Times subscriber class that lost its base when Yoel Roth and the whole old censorious regime of Twitter got kicked out by Elon Musk. And so they're trying to get back in there. And the only way is to dislodge Elon. So they found this opening, paint him as an anti-Semite who's emboldening anti-Semites on Twitter and Nazis. And so Elon, in order to mollify the ADL, he's giving in to them. He can't go to Auschwitz with Jonathan Greenblatt. So he organized this trip with this dweeby podcaster. And it should be like beneath the dignity of someone as wealthy and prominent as Elon Musk in an oligarchy like the one we live in to bring this talentless basement dweller, Ben Shapiro, out there. Uh, but that's what he has to do because Ben Shapiro is an opponent of the ADL because Ben Shapiro is a conservative, like a social conservative Republican. So he's mollifying the ADL by bringing another wing of the Israel lobby, the Republican wing, in order to give them basically the same, some version of what the ADL wants without ceding total control of Twitter to the old, you know, Democrat, liberal censorship regime. That's that's what this is about. And if you watch the event, you see how utterly unspectacular Elon Musk is, just how uncharismatic he is, incoherent, unable to really string words together. He seems to be sort of it's almost like he's reading like low IQ right wing tweets in succession rather than uh, speaking from his own intellect. And at this and, and him and Ben Shapiro at the same time are putting forward the meritocracy as the ideal for any society to aspire to. Every society should just be a meritocracy and shouldn't take race or gender or history into consideration. As if they rose to the top of a meritocracy, like the reason that they're there and the reason that Elon Musk is wealthy or that Ben Shapiro has prominence is due to the fact that they inherited wealth or received sponsorship from billionaires in order to advance a political agenda that's in the establishment's interest. 
that's the only reason they're there. It's not like they just rose up with their boost. Elon Musk's family was wealthy. Ben Shapiro has been backed by Zionist billionaires for his whole career ever since he was like a 14-year-old calling for the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in the pages of like some heritage foundation town hall magazine. So like the whole thing is just ridiculous. Uh, but the irony of it all is that it's being driven by the ADL. Elon Musk is being like pushed around by so many forces that are actually more powerful than him. So to call him the world's richest man is one thing. Technically, he might be that, but he's not independently wealthy. Yeah, and of course, I mean, what is a, a you know pet cause for this crowd, especially Ben Shapiro? Elon Musk too. It's combating so you know identitarianism. Uh, cancel culture, uh, yeah. woke culture. Well, they're the biggest embodiments of that culture now with their, you know, like Ben Shapiro constantly railing about anti-Semitism on campuses, the firing of university presidents, um, the, uh, the the crackdown on students, which they support, including a chemical attack on students at Columbia recently. By, uh, by Israeli whole, soldiers who had just Israeli soldiers, uh, And this, you know, these hysterical Israeli, like that guy at Columbia, the professor who's constantly talking about how unsafe he feels. I mean, it's it's such a joke. I mean, Palantir, the the the, the private security company, uh, basically doing affirmative action for Jewish applicants, saying like, we're gonna privilege Jewish applicants. Ron DeSantis waiving transfer requirements for Jewish college students coming to Florida. I mean, like on top of the, of, of the barb, of like the barbarism they're supporting also just the stunning hypocrisy. It, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's like the most hypocritical thing possible for them to do. And it just shows that it just shows what Zionism is. It's like the most toxic form of identity politics possible. It's genocidal identity politics. It's cancel culture in the service of mass extermination. Uh, at the expense of actually historically oppressed and disadvantaged groups. It's basically identity politics for the elite. And Elon Musk is sitting there talking about how he's aspirationally Jewish. I mean, it couldn't be more clear what's going on there. Uh, on, the, I, on the other hand, just in closing, I will say, if it wasn't for Elon buying Twitter, I, I don't know if my account would still be there or we'd be <laughs> even, even like able to stream this discussion on Twitter. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's previously engaged with some of my tweets about Ukraine. He seems to get it there. I and mean, he's not afraid to uh, defy the neocon establishment on Ukraine. But obviously on Israel, that's the one space where no dissent is allowed. And you have to bow down if you want to, if you're in that elite class. Just um, like RFK, who is getting yeah. boosted by Elon. Yep. RFK is not actually an independent candidate. He is... Uh, he is controlled by the same forces that control Biden and Trump. We're still waiting for RFK Jr. to follow through on his uh, agreement to debate you. Uh, he made that months ago, uh, debate you on Israel-Palestine. He hasn't followed through on that. I know that Judge Napolitano recently uh, re renewed that invitation, offered to host it on a show. Yeah, he did. Um, and uh, soon after, I went uh, up uptown here in DC and did a great event with Jill Stein, who's on the Green Party ticket, who's going to be on the ballot in many states, I think in over 20 states. And she is issuing, asking voters to sign a pledge to stop 
to to prevent genocide, pledge to reject genocide. Don't vote for any candidate who supports what's happening in Gaza right now. Um, I think she's the most viable anti-genocide candidate. She's polling at 6% in Michigan, as I said before. Um, but let's stay on this theme of uh, the cynical exploitation of the Holocaust in order to advance genocide. Watch this. This is bonkers. This is one of the most insane pieces of propaganda that I've seen since October 7th, and there's been many of them. Really know what happened. On you really know what happened on October 7th. You've been lied to. We all have. Palestinians didn't behead babies. What? Didn't how can they even say that? Yeah, we were there. What? You were there? They can deny it ultimately. But something can never be erased. He's pointing to, a grandfather's pointing to a number on his arm that he got in a death camp. It says, from the horror of the Holocaust to the October 7th massacre, denying atrocities committed against Jews is anti-Semitism. This is produced by Cyberwell, an Israeli spirit. And these are three former hostages in Gaza with Avigdor Newman, who was released from Auschwitz in 1945. I mean, I can't even... That is so cynical. And uh, by the way, the video they're watching on their phone was by Propaganda and Company. Uh, many of you might follow them on Twitter. Uh, an explainer they did based on our reporting on October 7th and just all the lies Israel told. Yeah, one of those lies was uh, that uh, talking about one of the victims on October 7th being someone with uh, a number tattooed on their arm as if they were a Holocaust survivor. And that was recently fact-checked on Israeli television as being yet another lie. And we can show that clip, although it would require us to translate it uh, for our audio audience. But Israeli yeah. television recently did this debunking of, of several critical lies told by Israeli soldiers and officials in the aftermath of October 7th. And that was one of them. Um, and of course, that lie was repeated around the world that you know this Israeli soldier coming across a, a, a victim who, with a number tattooed on their arms, that, you know, suggesting that they were a Holocaust survivor, turned out to be a complete fabrication. Well, um, I got that video up, but um, let me just say about that last video, I mean, while it's kind of an honor to have our work or an explainer of our work identified as such a threat to the Israeli narrative on October 7th, uh, this video is one of the most dangerous pieces of propaganda because it's equating proven lies by Israel to documented facts about crimes committed against Jews during World War II when they were subjected to genocide. Mm. So this piece of propaganda is actually fodder for Holocaust deniers. Uh, and you see it, I do see it on social media. Holocaust deniers are saying, look at how much the Israelis, or they'll even say how much the Jews have lied about October 7th. Do you think they lied about anything else? And Israel and Zionists and Zionism are happy with that because anti-Semitism is the fuel for Zionism. It is the oil of Israel's occupation machine. It's the really the only thing that can justify the preservation of an exclusivist Jewish state and the permanent warehousing of Palestinians is the presence of anti-Semitism. So they actually want to spread Holocaust denial. They want anti-Semitism 
to be uh, not only uh, a fact of life, but to spread and grow. And that's what's so disgusting about this ad uh, and, and frightening. And meanwhile, I mean, how can you not look at the images coming out of Gaza or read some of the accounts and not compare it to the Nazi Holocaust? The other day I was reading the account of someone who was talking about trying to search somewhere for food, so anything, because, because they're starving there. Um, and they ended up reporting that they found a, a lemon. And that's what they brought back to their family. And, and also there's been now stories about people having to turn to animal feed to be able to feed themselves. I mean, this is Holocaust. Yeah. Level. One of our you former guests at the Gray Zone, Motassem Dahlul, who is a journalist in Gaza, he's recently reported having to survive off animal feed. He's in Northern Gaza. I mean, that's out of uh, a story from the Nazi Holocaust. That's something out of Mouse, you know, that famous graphic novel about uh, Jews during the Nazi genocide. Uh, but yet now the Jewish state is inflicting one today. Yeah, while, I have claiming, a... while, while claiming to still compare themselves to Holocaust victims. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a book called, like, I Have an Apple in My Pantry, a Holocaust book I have upstairs here by a Holocaust survivor. It's like the same thing. It's fending off starvation and hiding from death all around you. Um, the comparison is impossible not to make. It's also sort of, it sort of, is, it sort of makes sense when a state absorbs psychologically the, the spirit and the history of the Holocaust continuously within its own population and teaches its youth as they grow up that if they give a single inch to the other, to the outclass of Palestinians, that they will be subjected to genocide and that they use the Holocaust as a tool to frighten their population, it almost makes sense that when they send those youth as they grow up to confront the outclass who's portrayed as Nazis, that they would become a sort of Einsatzgruppen reenactment society, uh, reenacting the horrors of the Holocaust against those who they're told are going to exterminate them. And so, uh, as Edward Said said, uh, Palestinians are the victims of the victims. They are indirect victims of the Holocaust. And they're not just victims of Israelis. They're victims of Germany. They're victims of the United States. They're victims of all of Western Europe, which didn't want to deal with what they considered the Jewish problem in their own midst. So they forced it onto the Palestinians' backs. And so... You, we hear all of these. We heard all of these lies after October seventh. In as you said, Aaron, uh, in, deliberately invoking the Holocaust. Someone with a number on their arm killed, or uh, a baby baked in an oven. They were lies, but they were designed to exaggerate the crimes of Hamas in order to mobilize the Jewish Israeli population to commit genocide. And they're finally being called out in Israeli mainstream media which is crazy. Uh, we'll talk about why in a second, but watch this. I guess I'll have to turn down the volume and sort of translate it since we only have subtitles and we have people um, who are just uh, experiencing this stream through audio. 
We'll be able to end the negotiations deadlock, but before that, watch the following footage of the Kafir Brigade commander from Channel 14. When I arrived in Kibbutz Beri, there I encountered two main images of the battle, the enemy's brutality. One is a nursery school with innocent children. And they butchered all the kids. They killed them. You see the kids inside the house? Eight babies. Eight babies died. And another image that caught my attention is when I saw Jenya, may she rest in peace, an elderly woman from Kibbutz Berry. And I see the number engraved on her arm. And you say she went through the Holocaust, Auschwitz, and in the end died in Kibbutz Berry. That's not something that you can't even understand it. Well, no eight babies were killed in Berry, the host says on Channel 13. According to the kibbutz spokesperson, and there's no woman named Jenya in Barry, no woman with number on her arm. Here's some more footage of a soldier speaking. There are also children here, babies. He's, he's like on the verge of tears, hanged on a laundry line, really on one line. It was very hard to see. When I saw it, it shocked me. You don't really understand what you're seeing in front of your eyes. Is it a picture or is it really reality? It's very, very hard to understand. The soldiers talking about a supposed event in Kafar Aza, but in Kafar Aza they made it clear a long time ago this event didn't happen. He said the things he was told that it did that didn't happen on a tour of foreign news journalists who came there. And pay attention to what the police spokesman said to the foreign media not long ago. Guys, the things that happen here are so sick. This is not a Netflix show and it's not a cable news show. None of that. No, this is real life. This also didn't happen. So many terrible, cruel things happened. Some of the most cruel things that can be done to a human being on October 7th. Mickey Rosenthal, why were these things that didn't happen said? In order to increase the magnitude of the hatred for Hamas as if it's necessary as if what happened wasn't enough but what what why are people inventing these events the answer is that maybe they heard it as a rumor and maybe that's the most important thing to say it in this context the war is not only military and not only political it's mainly media and i'm not sure it's not the most important part so that's pretty much all we need to see from that clip um, but at the end they elicit a statement from the IDF spokesman apologizing for the lies that Israeli officers told after <laughs> October 7th. There's no apology for us after being attacked again and again and again as conspiracists and master manipulators. Um, and then they said, uh, this is actually giving, uh, uh, making the, the deniers happy. Uh, we're helping the, the deniers of October 7th by lying so much. It's like, You know, he says there, uh, we had to do this to increase the magnitude of the hatred for Hamas. Yeah. No, this was done to uh, justify a genocide. That's what this is done. That, that's what he means by hatred of Hamas. Well, the, the, the magnitude of, of Hamas had to be exaggerated in order to yeah, create okay, right, space. Yeah, yeah. For right, exactly. Um, and there's no apology to the 25,000 plus Palestinians massacred uh, on the on the backs of these lies and many others uh, that we've debunked and that still haven't been debunked in Israel, but maybe one day they will. Um, but first of all, note how this kind of debunking, we don't see this in US media because it's so vital for the US establishment media to maintain 
a firewall around the facts that challenge the narrative that underpin the Biden administration's support for Israel's genocide. Because many of these lies that are many of these lies have been repeated by top U.S. officials, including Joe Biden and Antony Blinken. And so, therefore, therefore, inside the U.S., there's still a firewall that exists that doesn't even exist right now inside of Israel. And um, and then it raises another question: What else are they lying about? Well, it's pretty obvious, as you can see from the reporting that we've done, that this claim of uh, rape being used as a weapon of war by Hamas on a mass scale is, is a fabrication because all the available evidence undermines the allegation. And um, of course, none of that matters to especially the U.S. political class, which keeps on repeating all these claims as if they're, you know, as if it's the air we breathe. But again, it's all lies and amazing how the truth comes out in Israel, but cannot come out in the U.S. Well, I mean, the truth is coming out on channel 13, but you go up one channel on channel 14, that's Netanyahu's channel, and they're just straight up lying and still saying babies uh, baked in ovens. And I mean, it really, uh, the Israeli public is is divided in a way that uh, wasn't expected after a traumatic event like October 7th. Um, they were divided before October 7th on the issue of Netanyahu, judicial reform, this huge culture war, Netanyahu's fanatical cabinet. Now they're divided again, and it's really around the issue of hostages. I mean, I showed before when we were interviewing Craig Mokhyber, these uh, the Jewish nationalists blocking Karim Shalom, blocking the aid that's not only going to civilians in Gaza, but going to the hostages. And there's a movement in Israel that is associated with Netanyahu's coalition partners who want to see the hostages dead. And the military is infested with this movement. Why? Why do they want them dead? Because the hostages, the captives, the POWs, the Israeli soldiers who are captured are actually prisoners of war. They interfere with the goal that at least a plurality of Israelis, I would say a majority, want to achieve, which is the extermination of Hamas, the elimination of Gaza as a threat and as a Palestinian entity, and the elimination of uh, the Palestinian struggle completely through ethnic cleansing and pushing as much of that population as possible into the Sinai desert and scattering them like wind, like, like, like seeds in the wind around the world. And so the hostages have to be eliminated. And here is uh, Nomi Don from... Uh, who is a hostage's cousin, I think. Yeah, she's the cousin of a captive on uh, Israel's national broadcaster, Khan News. With the, they say that there's no offer on the table. She's, explain to me how you see the situation. Naomi, you have a good perception. They're enacting on us the Hannibal Directive, she says. That's all. The government is Israel, the cabinet of my country, my prime minister, my defense minister. They are enacting on my family, on our citizens, on civilians taken captive from their homes. The Hannibal Directive. They continue the fighting even though it needs to be stopped. They're talking with us about pressure that is helping. But we see that it doesn't help with anything. Okay, so it's pretty clear there what she's saying. 
they're killing the Israeli military is deliberately killing Israeli captives in Gaza so they can continue the fighting so they can continue the genocide so they can go towards victory. There are signs all over uh, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv that say like together towards victory, you know, Kadima. And that just means unattainable goals that the military has failed to achieve and will never achieve, which are just delusional, but which Netanyahu needs to sell and market because as soon as he leaves power, he's toast. I mean, he's not just toast politically, he's personally toast because he goes back to court for four corruption cases he has right now he's immune uh and civil war uh, some kind of some kind of civil conflict will break out in israel if that this coalition breaks apart so the war is basically prolonging the inevitable pr yeah. pro postponing the inevitable yeah sorry yeah yeah and we talked about uh on our last stream how you know hostage was killed with poison gas his mother protested Ron Sherman, the soldier's mother, who was captive soldier's mother, protested with a gravestone condemning the Israeli military and the Israeli state for killing her son. And they removed the grave. They removed the gravestone. He was killed with poison gas in a tunnel. There's no head wound. That's CAT scan showed no head wounds, no wounds to his body. How did he die? Um, so this is unbelievable and it also it, it this this also goes back to tony blinken in the state department and i've been saying this said it last week i've said it on other programs what bigger win could there be for a secretary of state especially someone like tony blinken who claims some special relationship based on his own ethno-religious ancestry to israel what bigger win could there be than getting the hostages out and then bringing them to a big ceremony on the White House lawn. I mean, and it would deliver, uh, you know, Jewish support for the White House too, for, for Biden too, as he campaigns. But it would require something that he can't do, refuses to do, which is impose a ceasefire. It's the only way. And they won't do it. So Tony Blinken, who came to Israel as a Jew, is condemning the hostages <laughs> to certain death at the hands of the Israeli military. Because he's such a committed fanatic. Uh, he would rather murder Palestinian babies and other civilians than help his own political fortunes um, and help the hostages that he claims to, the, the Israeli captives he claims to care about. It's um, And Biden too, obviously. It's, it's unbelievable. But here's one thing that Tony Biden, that Antony Blinken has delivered. Uh, this is from Reuters. The U.S. has created a channel with Israel to specifically discuss concerns and speak and seek explanations over incidents in Gaza in which civilians have been killed or injured by the Israeli military and civilian facilities have been targeted. The channel was set up after a meeting earlier this month between Secretary of State Blinken and Israel's war cabinet, during which Blinken expressed concern about the constant reports of Israeli strikes that either hit humanitarian sites or resulted in large numbers of civilian casualties. So... Uh, more than three months in, 25,000 plus killed. And finally, Tony Blinken has managed to set up a genocide complaint line where, or feedback line where you can call Israeli counterparts and offer them some mild complaints or questions about the genocide that they're perpetrating with his support. That's, that's what Tony Blinken's doing. 
Well, that's not all. I mean, the State Department has to approve this sale. Israel and the U.S. have signed a new military package deal that includes 25 F-35s, 25 genocide machines, 25 F-15s, and at least 12 Apache attack helicopters, uh, 25 Hannibal directive copters, and supply thousands of munitions, meaning the tank shells that are being used to randomly shell homes all across the Gaza Strip in a besieged enclave that has basically been transformed into a death camp where there are no tanks. This is the reward Netanyahu gets for denouncing the two-state solution that Blinken was presenting as a palliative to all of the, the entire crisis that had erupted under his watch. Netanyahu just put just throwing up a middle finger in Biden and Blinken's face. This is his reward. They're fast-tracking this arms deal to Israel. And it's not just to assault Gaza, it's to expand the war regionally to southern Lebanon and to and beyond. This is it's like a zombie administration. I mean, Tony Blinken's like a zombie. Just look at him. Yeah. As he's you, I don't. He says he he doesn't he he claims to play the blues. There's no feeling in there when he plays the blues. He didn't like like Muddy Waters had to like migrate from the Mississippi Delta to Chicago. He felt pain of dislocation and slavery. Tony Blinken gets up there and plays Muddy Waters, and it's like an AI bot could play like he plays, except better. Tony Blinken doesn't have anything behind his eyes. He's just there to inf to represent this zombie system that cannot stop keeping is Israel's financial feeding tube and its genocide machine rolling. And I mean, what what is the even the purpose of listening to any anything they have to say? Like there's not it really like remember when Donald Trump said he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Ave and his and uh you know the MAGA movement would still support him. Netanyahu could shoot Tony Blinken's whole family and he'd still authorize arms shipments to him. Yeah, it's true. You know, um on the point about how Biden, if they wanted the Biden administration, if they wanted a political win, they could push for a ceasefire and a hostage exchange, but they're not. Um, here's CNN acknowledging that this is a significant weak point for Biden's re-election chances, uh, especially among young voters. His patience is clearly running thin, not just uh, because of what he is seeing on the ground there, but also we know the political reality that he's facing. We see. So uh, that's Dana Bash doing spin for Biden, saying his patience is running thin with Israel. Of course it's not. That's why he's continuing to arm and support it. They so always keep saying that. Yeah, it's just, yeah. You're required to repeat that that PR talking point of the Biden administration, that they're so frustrated with Netanyahu, they can't do anything about it. Their, their, their hands are tied while they're still happen to be giving him unfettered support, all the weapons he wants. And she's but interviewing the, Barack Ravid, who's an Israeli reporter who's been brought to DC. He's actually an Israeli army reservist. <laughs> That's why he gets so many scoops. Yeah. We see protesters every single time, uh, practically that he speaks in front of an audience. Tell us about your reporting. Well, I think that's exactly it. Biden's people, uh, several of them told me that they want to do everything to make sure 
that when we get closer to the elections, what dominates the news is not the war in Gaza because it hurts Biden, especially among young voters. And this is his weak spot and they want to somehow find a solution. His patience is clearly running thin, not just. So basically the genocide can continue until close to the elections because at that point it's going to be too, uh, it's going to make Biden too vulnerable. So that's like, it's a recognition, first of all, that this is hurting his political chances, but also that uh, Biden sees uh, his political fortunes as number one. He doesn't care about Palestinian lives. He's fine to let them keep dying until it gets too close to the election. Then maybe he'll finally call it off. So uh, there, there, there are problems in the Biden administration. And I mean, even for, to come in in 2020 and work in the administration, you already have to be like kind of a soulless careerist. Uh, for the most part, especially if you're on the foreign policy side. Um, but, you know, a lot of the younger Biden staffers are getting upset. Yeah. And Jeff Zients, who uh, actually knows nothing about science because he managed the pandemic response, uh, helped manage it. He's the head of Biden's COVID task force and just lied and lied and lied. He's worth about $150 million. He's got all kinds of conflicts of interest, was formerly on Meta's board. He's the White House chief of staff. Close, they say he's a Biden confidant. I don't know how you can be a confidant of someone who like doesn't know where they are most of the time, but he's basically a Biden. He's, he's kind of like a Biden bag man. He's like a money man for Biden. Um, and he moves the papers, controls the flow of paperwork. He held a morale boosting party in Washington two nights ago for young Biden staffers. And watch what happened there. This is an incredible scene. Channing, quit your job, quit your job. They look really happy to go in there though. Like, can you imagine them like getting hype on the dance floor after that? This is incredible. So that's I don't know pathetic, if that's a pathetic party. Morale boosting for the genocidal administration. That's a wow. Well, the How other thing is they, they know they're gonna lose unless like the election's completely rigged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. like they're that they, they signed up for like when you work in the White House, especially when you work in the White House, you first of all you're not making a lot of money. Um, you're not making as much as people in the private sector in DC and you're working really hard. And a lot of the younger staffers have to work like 16 hour days and they believe they have to believe in a higher cause. And if they find out that they wasted all that time and they're going to lose, and then a Republican's going to come in, I mean, yeah, it does look good on their resumes to some extent, but it also kind of, it, it can be demoralizing and that's what they get. They get a party and they get reminded that like, they're just involved they're implicated in genocide on their way in um, and we also had the we also had the biden uh what was it the uaw yep event i mean this is not good for biden everywhere he goes he's heckled this is great this is this is so as as craig mokhyber was saying this is what needs to happen this is a way of enforcing the icj ruling it's so much better to than uh, blocking working class people's commute uh, and making working class people your target. This is what needs to be done is targeting the Democrats. 
They're chanting UAW. Okay, but he was interrupted there. Wasn't as bad as, uh, I would say it wasn't as bad as what happened when he tried to hold this uh, abortion rally. It was like kind of his kickoff event and he was interrupted 13 times because of the Biden policy of uh, administering post-birth abortions and massive numbers to children and babies in Gaza. Uh, I mean, he could barely get through that one. And then he goes, tries to send his people to Michigan. I mean, remember Hillary lost Michigan in 2016. She didn't campaign there. Yeah. It's just such a decisive blow. Yeah. You had all these kind of like working guys in the suburbs who are just like, you know what? I don't really care about love Trump's hate. Uh, you sent my job overseas and I'm just going to take a chance on this other guy is going to send jobs back and you didn't even show up here. So Biden's like, I got to show up there. I'm going to send some staffers. And here's what happened. This is uh Yasmin Al-Sabawi. We walked into the offices of the Arab American News in Dearborn, Michigan, which is a, you know, population center of the Arab American and Palestinian community. Just moments after Biden's campaign manager walked out, she was told the president is not just unwelcome here ahead of the election, but that he can basically forget about votes from the Arab American bloc. Um, basically, Biden is banned from Democratic hotbeds in Michigan. Dearborn's right outside Detroit. So, Aaron, uh, I mean, I asked Jill Stein about her campaign and being a spoiler. And I mean, she, she made the valid point that most of the people voting for her, the vast majority probably wouldn't have voted otherwise. They're, they're not going to vote for a Democrat. Yeah, no, no, of course. I mean, the spoiler question, I think in this, at this point is totally moot. Um, you know, uh, AOC made a comment recently about how, you know, electoral politics isn't everything and you can never expect your candidate to meet everything you believe in and she's still voting for biden even though she disagrees with him on gaza but you know i mean some people decide that genocide is a red line sorry uh and many people are making that decision and um what what is biden's counter argument it's that trump wanted to do the muslim ban okay yeah the muslim ban was horrible uh but even though trump's policies contributed to all of this he he's not the one backing a genocide right now that's joe biden uh, Biden is the president right now who's arming and supporting the genocide. And therefore, to tell people to not hold him accountable for that, it, you know, you're asking someone to reward someone, to reward a president who's overseeing a mass murder campaign. And I just don't think that's going to be a very convincing argument. Well, uh, my, my point of view is, aside from the fact that there isn't any hope in electoral politics right now, national electoral politics, is, yeah, uh, Trump is worse from my point of view on issues like unions or you know if you believe in women's reproductive rights you know he's going to report appoint republican judges and you look at the dobbs decision the majority of americans favor a woman's right to get an abortion control her own body it's a civil liberties question then you have biden's like worse on other on on other issues pretty much on on foreign policy uh 
you know, there, I, I don't know if there would have been this war and this Ukraine proxy war. We've talked about that a million times. But the issue for me and for so many people is about it's about the hopelessness of electoral politics and the the foreign policy duopoly where the Democrats take you for granted if you have progressive views on other issues like class issues or civil liberties issues, they take your vote for granted and then they just assume that you're going to vote for them while they go and do the most heinous things imaginable abroad. And they need to pay a price. They need to understand that they can't get away with it. And there needs to be a block that refuses their to hand over their vote unless they believe in the candidate or we're just going to be mired in hopelessness and nihilism will take hold among the younger generation in this country, which really doesn't have much of an economic future. So I think this is the moment to withhold our votes and stop the spread of hopelessness and nihilism in this country. Uh, if they're going to sell out Palestinians, then they're going to sell out the majority of young voters who are part of their constituency. They'll sell anybody out, and they have. Uh, and, and beyond that, it's just an insult to everyone that they're continuing to run Joe Biden and pretend that he's a viable candidate who's uh, cognitively aware. It's an insult to our intelligence. Uh, and, and, and I'm just, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of being insulted. What do you think? Hey, hey man, no, I, I agree with all that, all that. I was going to play the AOC clip, but it's like really long and uh, it's, it, you know, it could give yeah. me a seizure. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, it's like with Trump too. Yes. So many of his policies contributed to what we're going through right now. Like he pushed through, uh, the Abraham Accords, uh, further sidelining Palestinians. He cut funding to Palestinian refugees, moved the embassy to Jerusalem, which is a hugely provocative move, which had serious consequences. Same with Ukraine, uh, you know, largely under the, under the pressure of Russia Gate, he pushed through a whole series of hawkish policies toward Russia that contributed to the tensions that led to the February 2022 invasion. But, you know, it's he also avoided um, getting the U.S. involved in a full scale military conflict. You could argue he tried to with Iran when he killed Soleimani. Uh, but that didn't happen in the end. Uh, he did try to pull U.S. troops out of Syria. He did make that order. He was undermined uh, from the people working for him. And now a lot of the people who he had pushing through these policies and encouraging him to do it, like John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, openly hate his guts. So even if Trump was so weak and malleable, again, as to you know be uh, pushed into all these policies that uh, are warmongering, the amount of personnel who would be pushing, like the ranks of the per, of the neocons who would do that are thinning because they're all now openly against them. So I just can't see how Trump coming in again could be any worse than Joe Biden is right now. I mean, on every single issue, just he chooses warmongering every single time. Um, you know, Yemen, uh, obviously the war in Ukraine, where um, who knows, like given Trump's personal affinity for, for Putin, who he likes, uh, maybe that could have stopped it rather than Biden's policy of undermining negotiations at every opportunity. Yeah, my view of Biden versus Trump's kind of analogous to my view of Netanyahu versus his opponents. I mean, you have Benny Gantz, former Israeli army chief of staff. He's in the war cabinet now. Uh, but prior to October 7th, he was in the opposition 
kind of a leader of these mass protests against Netanyahu. He ran against Netanyahu, shared the prime ministership with a right winger, uh, Naftali Bennett. Benny Gantz campaigned when he campaigned for prime minister with an ad boasting of how many Palestinians he killed in Gaza in 2014. Uh, and the ad just showed rubble and the numbers of Palestinians killed. Of course, he, he called them terrorists. So that was his op opponent. And at the same time, Benny Gantz was getting positive coverage from the liberals in the New York Times, presented as a hero of democracy who was more moderate than Netanyahu. Netanyahu really lifts the mask on Zionism and what Israel truly is while doing the same things his opponents would have done. And in many cases, he might have actually been more restrained than his than fanatics like Benny Gantz, who was directly presiding over the assault on Gaza in 2014. Uh, Netanyahu called Palestinians Amalek. He openly spoke genocidal language. Netanyahu openly says that his biggest achievement is opposing the two-state solution, while his opponents undermine and undercut the two-state solution in a Palestinian state in more sophisticated ways. Yeah. And it's the same thing here with Biden and Trump. Trump, especially vis-a-vis -vis Israel, Palestine, he lifted the mask on the peace process and the whole lie that the U.S. actually was committed to a Palestinian state. He said, screw it. Israel should just annex the West Bank. So let them do it. Let Israel take control and then be held accountable for being the real occupier instead of having this phony occupation subcontractor in the PA and this, this fantasy of Palestinian autonomy. Trump just, uh, he moved the embassy into, you know, he, 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 he just, he, he initiated the Abraham Accords, a peace among, between the rich to bypass the Palestinian question or Palestinian problem. He accelerated the process that led to October 7th, also by killing Soleimani, which I mean, was horrible, but all Trump did was accelerate the process that was, and the gears and like move the gears faster. But the process was set into motion by the political establishment the, of George W. Bush Republicans and Clinton Democrats yeah. or Obama Democrats and Biden and Democrats. So that's, so, so what are we going to get? And, and so what's so important about protesting Biden and what especially younger pro people are doing in the, who are part of this anti-genocide movement is they are declaring that they see behind the mask of the Democrats and they're not going to take it anymore. Yeah, Democrats are also, you know, with their behavior, making the case that they're better on the outside, better maybe with control of Congress, but not the White House. Because if Trump was in the office and doing the same things that Biden was doing, would Democrats be so obedient and lining up behind them, especially Great when it point to, to Gaza, where you only, you know, initially there was only a handful of Democratic lawmakers, all of them people of color, uh, who were willing to call for a ceasefire. And uh, if Trump were in the White House doing the same thing, would that number be higher? I think it's plausible to say that it would. And so they're, through their own uh, corruption and brutality, are making the case that it's better to have them on the outside where they might actually fight harder for the things that they claim to care about, but won't fight for when their own person, when their own guy is in the White House. Yeah, exactly. Even on, I mean, on Ukraine, <laughs> if Trump had been presiding over this losing proxy war, I yeah. could have imagined some congressional Democrats, you know, issuing a resolution to stop funding neo-Nazis. Yeah, as they used to do, as they did. Um, exactly. Congress member John Conyers had that measure. Ro Khanna is a great example. Ro Khanna revived the Conyers measure 
to ban assistance to the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. And as soon as Russia invaded in February 2022, Rokhana forgot about all of that. You know, he forgot about his own measure, which called for banning assistance to Azov. And now all of a sudden, Azov were, were heroes. And we for, we're supposed to forget that they're a neo-Nazi. Well, the fantasy persists on Ukraine, despite the fact that Ukraine appears to be losing Avdivka, which will deny them any ability to launch strikes on Donetsk City. And it pretty much, I mean, it would be, I would say, the most devastating blow of the war. Um, but we have uh, some talk of negotiations in a back channel. Putin has put out feelers to the U.S. via indirect channels to signal he's open to talks for ending Russia's war in Ukraine, including potentially on future security arrangements for Ukraine. According to Kremlin sources, what do you make of this, Aaron? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but what I know is that there are I mean, a series of these reports in U.S. outlets now saying that Putin has been putting out feelers. The New York Times recently reported that Putin put out a feeler uh, to the U.S. back in September 2022. So months after the U.S. blocked the April 2022 peace deal reached in Turkey between Russia and Ukraine, Putin, again, according to the New York Times, put out a new feeler in September uh, that was ignored. And Blinken has gone around the world since claiming that he's seen no signs of any interest in meaningful diplomacy from Russia. And what he means by meaningful diplomacy is basically bowing to U.S. demands, uh, yeah. which is, means basically uh, giving up Russia's security interests in Ukraine and caring about the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine that's been under assault since the Maidan coup of 10 years ago next month. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the Maidan coup. Uh, so Blinken, just like in, in Gaza, has been you know, uh, sabotaging any meaningful opportunity for diplomacy and for peace. And uh, these reports continue to come out of that Putin is open to talks, but you know he's not going to get anything because this Biden administration, I think their only game plan is to delay Ukraine's defeat until after they're up for re-election in November 2024. I think that's the only thing they, they really care about. And meanwhile, in the meantime, it's leading to things like this. There was just this huge tragedy where a Russian military plane was shot down by Ukraine, um, killing everybody on board, including... Uh, 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war uh, who were being taken by Russia for a prisoner exchange. And Ukraine initially took claimed credit for the shooting down the plane and said, uh, and but then when Russia said that actually you shot your, down your own people, then Ukraine started denying it and then started claiming that the plane was only carrying Russian missiles. And now Ukraine is accusing Russia of lying about it, uh, which is a pretty extraordinary allegation. But if what Russia is saying is true, and it looks to me like it is, then Ukraine just killed 65 of its own soldiers. So these are the kind of tragedies that that keep occurring the longer this war continues. Uh, there are allegations by Russia, which, I mean, this appears very valid, that it was downed by a NATO weapon, a Patriot missile or an IRIS missile, which I believe is supplied by Germany. Um, and you can see in that video we showed, it looks like some it, it, there does appear to be some kind of surface-to-air missile going up. This is over. Was it was it fired from Kharkiv towards Belgorod? Exactly towards Belgorod. I don't know where it's fired from, but definitely uh, in Belgorod, which is pretty the sure it's fired region from of Russia. Okay, and then here's another aspect to this shoot down. 
According to a preliminary, preliminary report, there were Azov members transported for exchange today on the plane allegedly shot down by Ukraine inside Russia. And, you know, I've spoken to some, some Ukrainians and Russians about this, just asking them questions. And they said they, they, they believe this to be the case. Zelensky will have a lot of explaining to do to Ukrainian nationalists after this. And then I've seen like the NAFO crowd, the fellas actually denying that any prisoners were on the plane and claiming that only five members of the crew were killed. But, you know, if there were like, as they say, like 12 members of Azov on the flight, then we have to go back to an incident we discussed on this stream last year, which was when a um, POW camp in the Donbass, I believe, was attacked by Ukrainians in order to kill all of the Azov members who had been held up there, who were captured during the uh, Azov-style siege in Mariupol, who are like the hardest of the hardcore Azov, who represent not only you know a threat to all ethnic Russians in that area and to Russia, but also to Zelensky. Zelensky sees them as this you know extremely dangerous entity in a, or element in his midst. And so they eliminated them. They also wanted them eliminated so they couldn't talk. So did Ukraine employ a version of the Hannibal Directive to eliminate these prisoners of war for political reasons? What do you think, Aaron? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I also could just see this as just total incompetence on the part of Ukraine. Um, yeah. You know, these things happen. And uh, it just underscores to me just what a futile war this is. Um, Russia has right now between 18 and 20 percent of Ukrainian territory. The counteroffensive was a massive failure. Uh, Russia's demands from the start, contrary to all the propaganda we get, I think were uh, reasonable or at least negotiable. But there's been no interest in that from the Biden administration. And even if Zelensky were interested in such negotiations, as he was for a brief moment in the spring of 2022, when he reached a tentative peace deal with Russia, he's boxed in by the Biden administration on the one side, and then the ultranationalists on the other who have threatened to kill him. So unless Washington changes its policy, this, you know, this war and the tragedies just go on. I, you're right that it could be incompetence. Uh, and it would make sense uh, given how undermanned the Ukrainian military is at this point. They're throwing... They're trying to throw fresh meat into the grinder, and that means poorly trained personnel manning sophisticated NATO batteries. Uh, to man a Patriot missile battery, it requires millions of dollars of training and months of training alone, which is why we said from the beginning that sending the Patriot battery or batteries was never going to change the state of play. As you know, it was, I, I'm, I'm having all these recovered memories of U.S. media hyping up Zelensky coming to Washington and getting one Patriot battery. And yeah. so many of the civilian casualties we see in Ukrainian cities come from misfired surface-to-air missiles, uh, you know, anti-aircraft missiles uh, or anti-aircraft missiles that explode in midair and the shrapnel falls on apartment blocks, as we saw in, uh, in Dnipro uh, late last year. Early, uh, in, uh, no, uh, earlier last year. So there's no way out. The die is cast. It's over. 
But as Biden and Blinken have openly said, sending this all the weapons to Ukraine, they're all, they're all complaining now nonstop. The Republicans are holding it up over the border because Trump yeah. wants to create keep this border crisis going. Well, they want to keep this Ukraine crisis going. Exactly. And part of the reason they they want to keep it going is for money. They openly say it. <clears throat> they're job creators. Yep. The well, Blinken, of democracy. Yeah, Blinken recently talked about how what a great thing this is because it creates so many American jobs. Is if there aren't other ways to create U.S. jobs uh, aside from making more weapons of death for a futile proxy war, it's like all of a sudden they become like new dealers when there's an opportunity to make weapons, and it shows what a racket this is because the weapons of Ukraine, uh, because the weapons that are being sent to Ukraine, Ukrainians have complaining that they're inadequate, they're old, because a lot of this basically is the U.S. shipping Ukraine its old equipment and then using the money <laughs> that it gets from the American people to replenish the US stockpile with new weapons. So it's like, a, as Julian Assange talked about, it's just a, it's a racket for the US military industrial complex and everybody washing the price. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. where'd all the Bradleys go? All the Bradley striker vehicles. Yeah. They, the old ones from the Gulf War got sent to Ukraine. It's like uh, when you go to Central America, they, they I think, they, what do they call it? Like paquete, paquete clothes. Basically, the U.S. sends like piles and piles of old clothes that people throw away down there in these packets. And then you see like little kids like are walking around with like um, shirts relating to some cookout, some like uh, Polish family's cookout in Wisconsin. And they they but you do get some cool vintage clothes too, like a lot like a lot of the stores in in Managua, for example, have really cool like hipster sh ironic shirts. And they all—it's all paquete. That's what the Ukrainians are getting from the Pentagon—is like paquete weapons. Uh, it's just basically junk, and and then and then the money comes back here to the contractors, the Beltway bandits, and they buy up real estate in places like the Washington D.C. suburbs, jack up prices, and build all these luxury apartments around dc and then the poor and working class population here gets pushed out so it's just it's just such a disgusting economic model and it's what biden and blinken are openly promoting as the arsenal of democracy it's the arsenal of oligarchy it's the it's the arsehole of oligarchy uh and that's all i got for today All right. Well, thanks to everyone for tuning in. TheGrayZone.com is where you can find us. Please uh, like the stream and share it. Uh, support The Gray Zone if you can. The Patreon and PayPal is there on the bottom of the screen. Yeah, that's all I got too. Good. Well, we had a good run. Uh, we're not running for president as a <laughs> joint ticket. We don't know who uh, would be VP or president anyway. Um. You know, unless unless Jank Weger gets the Jank Weger of the Young Turks gets the nomination, then I then I would launch a, a challenge immediately. But otherwise, yeah, no. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll serve as VP if you do that. I'll just be like the attack dog, and you you'll be the the policy guy. Yeah, Jank is like talking about that still, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like he's not the first person to use the presidential race as a marketing opportunity. I mean, he 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 doesn't. He's not the only person in that lane. There's an opportunity to sell t-shirts and, and, and merch, you know. Uh, so he's just seeing a, a good opportunity. 
like any good businessman. Is it a good opportunity? It's like for some people, yeah. For some people, you know, you sell merch, uh, you you build your brand. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely happening out there. I mean, who are the people who who are like, yeah, I'm gonna buy a, a jank, jank. <laughs> is it a jank Uger? Jank Uger. Sorry, yeah. Jank yeah. Uger T-shirt for present. Like, who 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 are they? <laughs> like, I'm I'm really excited. This is so exciting. He's like the first. The, yeah, maybe you're right. Actually, I've never met one in real life, so. They could just be like. I mean, if, as far family. as I can tell, he's just getting clowned like left yeah. and right as he tries to uh, change the rules or argue that the rules should be changed so he can run because I guess he wasn't born in the United States, so he's constitutionally forbidden. I mean, there's so it's already like the Star Wars bar with this campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Uh, whatever. I I feel like dirty that I even acknowledged the Young Turks' existence. Yeah, my bad, my bad. Um, all right, you everyone. acknowledge the majority report's existence. Like I, I've moved on beyond that point in my life, that phase in my life. Well, I don't think we've ever acknowledged them on our stream because we wouldn't want to pollute our our airwaves with that. I do on Twitter sometimes make fun of them if they if they yeah. if they launch another disingenuous attack on us where they call they call us discredited but can't name one single thing that we've ever said accurately. They always distort our positions and then attack us based on. A distortion of what we say but I'll, I'll respond there but i certainly would never pollute our airwaves with with them because who cares yeah i guess that's what twitter's for yeah um but we're, we're keeping it pure here yeah <laughs> all right well, well thanks everybody who who watched or listened um yeah we really appreciate you subscribing because we're so suppressed on youtube liking this stream every single stream we do where we mention the word israel is demonetized and suppressed now without explanation by YouTube. So you're helping us, you know, break through the algorithm a little bit. And uh, yeah, you can support us. Well, thanks for all your support. And uh, as you can see, we're trying to be more on time, more prompt. So we'll see you back here next week. Peace, everybody. Peace.